When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Like Major League, The Natural, or even Field of Dreams, this 80s flick is one of those sports movies that always seems to be on one of the many basic cable TV channels every spring and summer. It doesn't matter whether it's 2 in the afternoon or 2 in the morning. Somewhere in the outer reaches of cable TV, these main characters can be found bickering about baseball and who's taking who to bed. So if you believe in the church of baseball and long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last three days, then grab your bat, your glove, and garter belts as Ron West and I discuss Bull Durham from 1988 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. What do you believe in there? Well, I believe in the small of a woman's back. The hanging curveball, high fiber, good scotch, and I believe in long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last for three days. Oh my. Who are you? I'm the player to be named later. I love winning, man. You hear what I'm saying? It's like better than losing. These are the ground rules. I hook up with one guy a season. Usually takes a couple weeks to pick the guy. Kind of my own spring training. You think Dwight Gooden leaves his socks on? God, the sucker teed off in that like he knew I was going to throw a fastball. He did know. I told him. Honey, I want you to wear these when you're pitching on the road. They're garters. Rose goes in the front, big guy. Love is a lot like baseball. It's not whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game. No problem, no problem, baby, no problem. Kevin Costner. Get a hit, Crash. Oh, shut up. Susan Sarandon. Have you ever been tied up in bed? Tim Robbins. Woo-hoo! I'm too old for this. Bull Durham. Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, and welcome to the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Here we talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which 80s flick we choose for each episode, we have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow 80s Flick Flashback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And while you're there, leave us a stellar written review and a five-star rating. You can also support the show by following us on our social media pages. Just search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And go ahead and check out our website, 80sflickflashback.com, for more great 80s content. Now, let's jump right into this episode. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome in, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Uh, it is baseball season. We are deep, not we're not deep in the throws, but we're, you know, we're a couple of, uh, about 40 games in at this point of uh, the baseball season. And uh, it's time to talk about a baseball movie. So we've covered Major League, we covered Field of Dreams, and Ron West would not let me go any further if we did not talk about Bull Durham. So, uh, and of course, I have Mr. Ron West with me. How you doing, Ron? I am doing great. Bull Durham, the greatest baseball movie ever made. And uh, yes, you and I are both still basking in the success of our Atlanta Braves defending World Series champion. Yes, I'd be basking a little bit more if they were doing a little bit better. (laughs) I mean, they're not terrible, but, you know, they're they're starting the season kind of like they started last season, you know, 
get ready to make that come from behind miracle run in the uh, end of the season. But. Yeah, the difference is we were in uh, in position to make a run uh, <laughs> last year. We were only a couple of games back, even when we were struggling. But the Mets are building quite a lead on us. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but yeah. So feel uh, we so yeah. So we talked about Major League. We talked about Field of Dreams, which are two of like my favorite baseball movies. And uh, we'll talk about this, but Ron and I've had this discussion. Ron's always been a fan of Bull Durham, and I remember we talked about this a couple of years ago. And I was like, I saw it when I was younger, but it didn't really connect with me, and so. I went back and watched it again. Before we jump into that part, let's just do what we normally do. Tell me, Ron, when did you see Bull Durham for the very first time? On a rare uh, change of pace for you and I on this podcast, <laughs> I did not see Bull Durham in the movie theater. Oh my goodness. Somebody uh, make note. This is like, this may be yeah, a first. This was a VHS rental uh, the first time I saw it. First time I saw it, uh, it was not a big fan. It's like, ah, it's okay. Mm hmm. Uh, watched it again and really liked it, and then by the third time, love it. And now Bull Durham, for me, is like Caddyshack. If I'm changing the channels <laughs> and it's on, yeah, the TV just stops wherever it is in the movie. It just stops there and stays there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like. I'm like you. I saw this on VHS probably a couple of years after it came out. Um, I had already seen Major League and probably Major League 2 by this point, so I was a big fan of those, which is much more straight up comedy, you know, goofy kind of comedy. And this is not. And so I guess thinking that was what I was kind of gearing up for, um, it didn't turn out to be uh, like that at all. And so, and then to it, you know, watching it now as I'm older, it is really more of an adult movie, not in, you know, that kind of sense, but just like it's, it deals with more adult themes than major league was just silly. So you could be a kid, even though it had language and stuff in major league, it was still goofy and silly that kid could connect with that. This one has some themes and some ideas that are a little bit, you gotta be a little bit more mature to kind of pick up on those things. It still has its funny moments and it still has, you know, great baseball scenes, but it's a little bit more of a, uh, I wouldn't say, I would almost say it's more, it, it could be more of a comedy drama than just a straight up comedy, especially as it gets in the, uh, the latter half of the movie. But, um, but how long had it been since you watched it before watching it for the podcast? So it had been a while since I watched it in its entirety. adult content <laughs> in, entirety. Right. So you, you, you often catch this on TBS, TNT, AMC, something like that. So that's usually how I've been catching it. I had kind of forgotten how adult some of these, <laughs> yeah. uh, some of the parts of this movie, some of the language and, and other things were. Uh, so much so that it, it, it kind of, I kind of jumped back a little bit. I was like, oh, I, I forgot about that. I forgot he says that. I forgot they do that. Right, right. So it, it, in its unedited version, man, probably, I mean, I'd guess maybe 20 years. Oh, wow. Since, okay. I, had, since I had seen the unedited. But during that time, I've probably seen it 20 times. <laughs> Just the TV version. But the edited version every time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, I I had I think I watched this last year. I think we were you and I were talking about it because I think we were talking about it last year after we did Field of Dreams, and as like I knew that was one I needed to watch, and I, I found it on one of the streaming channels that they had it available, and I watched. And I think I was texting you was like, "Man, this movie is great!" Like I didn't realize how funny and how great it was, and so so yeah. So I mean that that was the last time I watched it. And of course. Uh, watched it for this so but I really enjoyed it I think I enjoyed it more kind of like you saying the third time was kind of like the charm for you it might have been the, I mean I enjoyed it the second time last year but watching it again this week I was like I really enjoyed it and even I kind of watched most of it again today and it was still a lot of the you know fun funny parts I knew was coming so I, was, I got a little bit more excited for some of the scenes uh, that I'm sure we'll talk about as we go <laughs> All right, well, you ready to jump into story origin pre-production? Absolutely. All right, well, uh, the film's name is based on the nickname for Durham, North Carolina, since 1874, when W.T. Blackwell and Company named its product Bull Durham Tobacco, which soon became a well-known trademark. In 1898, James B. Duke purchased the company and renamed it the American Tobacco Company. By this time, the nickname Bull City had already stuck. The film's writer and director, Ron Shelton, played minor league baseball for five years after graduating from Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. Initially playing second base for the Baltimore Orioles farm team, he moved from the Appalachian League to California and then Texas, 
before finally playing AAA baseball for the Rochester Red Wings in the International League. Shelton quit when he realized he would never become a major league player. He said, I was 25. In baseball, you feel 60 if you're not in the big leagues. I didn't want to become a Crash Davis. He returned to school and earned a Master of Fine Arts and Sculpture at the University of Arizona before moving to Los Angeles to join the city's art scene. However, he felt more kinship in telling stories than in creating performance art. His break into filmmaking came with script writing credits on the films Under Fire and The Best of Times. Best of Times, still one of my favorite sports movies ever. Highly underrated. Go check it out. But according to Shelton, he said, I wrote a very early script about minor league baseball. The only thing it had in common with Bull Durham was that it was about a pitcher and a catcher. That script was titled The Player to Be Named Later. A single anecdote from that script made it into Bull Durham. For Bull Durham, Shelton decided to see if a woman could tell the story and dictated that opening monologue on a little micro-recorder while he was driving around North Carolina. He said Crash was named after Lawrence Crash Davis, but was modeled after Pike Bishop, the lead character William Holden played in The Wild Bunch, a guy who loved something more than it loved him. Annie Savoy's name was a combination of the nickname Annie's that baseball players gave their groupies and the name of a bar. She was a high priestess who could lead us into a man's world and shine a light on it, he said, and she would be very sensual and sexual, yet she lived by her own rigorous moral code. It seemed like a character we hadn't seen before. After he'd returned to Los Angeles from his road trip, he wrote the script for Bull Durham in about 12 weeks. So, pretty interesting backstory. He kind of pulled a lot of, you know, some of his own personal experiences in minor league baseball for that, which is very evident that he definitely had a uh, kind of a behind-the-scenes look at, you know, what happens in minor league baseball. A lot of the dialogue, for sure. Right. This is a much more realistic baseball movie than like a major league, yeah, for yeah. example, that, that you were referencing, uh, even though it's a minor league team, but it clearly, clearly you knew someone had been involved with baseball mm-hmm. in, in the writing process. Yeah. I think the writer for major league, I don't, I don't think he played baseball. He did a lot of research, but that was like his fantasy was to see the Cleveland Indians who have, you know, were known for being a horrible team for many, many years. Like he just, it was his fantasy to see them win a big game, and so that's why he kind of made the movie. So go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear all those stories. But, um, but yeah, this one, I think that's, that's what kind of sets this one apart. Like you said, it, it, it gives kind of that behind-the-curtain look at, the, at minor league that doesn't get a lot of press or a lot of praise, but you had some great, you know, most, you know a lot of our major league stars came up through the minors or spent time in the minors when – uh, things weren't going exactly the way they wanted it to. So, uh, so definitely a good angle to bring a story for sure. So, uh, filming began on October 5th, 1987 and wrapped on November 30th, 1987. So that was a quick, uh, 56 days of filming. When Shelton pitched Bull Durham, he had a hard time convincing a studio to give him the opportunity to direct. Baseball movies were not considered a viable commercial prospect at the time. And every studio passed except for Orion Pictures who gave him, a, gave him a $9 million budget, with many cast members accepting lower-than-usual salaries because of the material. Uh, Shelton scouted locations throughout the southern United States before settling on Durham in North Carolina because of its old ballpark and its location. The Imperial Tobacco Warehouse, which is currently owned and has been renovated by Measurement Incorporated, was used as a filming location. So, uh, But yeah, I was actually born in North Carolina, so a lot of the towns they reference are towns that I'm, I'm very much aware of. So, I mean, I know about Durham, North Carolina, but there's one scene where they talked about, uh, they did a stretch and uh, I think Annie's talking about, they, uh, they won like so many games, uh, like four out of, you know, they won three out of four games series, whatever. But one was the Greensboro, whatever the Greensboro team and Greensboro is like right outside the city that I was born in. So I just thought that was kind of a cool home connection for me. So I'm sure they put that in for you. Um, they knew one day you and I would. They were, yeah, they were thinking was, of me. I appreciate that. It was very, very nice of, Ms., of Mr. Shelton. But yeah, she <laughs> when she talks about they they kicked Winston Salem in a four game set and yeah, she's, yeah. Kicking, that's the part you're talking about. Like just different right. cities that the minor league team would have been playing in. And now these messages. Now 
while playing on a cell phone near you. A show for all the manly men out there, where guys talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man. Featuring the coolest guests. Murder somebody is not like killing an ant. The most gratifying laughs. It's Tombstone, what can I say? (laughs) (laughs) And a fresh take on movies like you've never heard before. This will be the thing that gets written on his proverbial tombstone. We aren't here to criticize the movies you love, but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands, fathers, and really all men in general. So buckle up your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is here. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up. Comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. Alright, so let's uh, jump into casting. Uh, Producer Tom Mount, who is part owner of the real Durham Bulls, hired Pete Bach, a former semi-pro baseball player as a consultant on the film, Bach recruited more than a dozen minor league players, ran a tryout camp to recruit an additional 40 to 50 players from lesser ranks, hired several minor league umpires, and conducted two-a-day workouts and practice games with Tim Robbins pitching and Kevin Costner catching. Bach made sure the actors looked and acted like baseball players and that the real players acted convincingly in front of the cameras. He said the director would say, this is the shot we want, what we need is the left fielder throwing a one-hopper to the plate, then we need a good collision at the plate. I would select the players I know could do the job, and then we'd go out and get it done. So that was kind of cool. You just get players that can make it look as realistic as possible. I mean, they weren't main characters in some of those scenes. So, But it made for some pretty decent you know, gameplay. I mean, it, it was also obvious in this that everyone other than Tim Robbins trying to pitch, who is, is terrible <laughs> as an actual pitcher. Right. Everyone else in in the movie has some skills as a baseball player. The actors that we kind of know, but also the ones on other teams and, right, and different. Right. You know, they they know how to swing a bat. They know how to throw a ball. It's not mm-hmm. an it, it's not an actor who's trying to learn how to do that. It's the people people with some athleticism who, who have played some baseball. Uh, all except for Tim Robbins, who's a terrible pitcher. Um, <laughs> so I mean, even Kevin Costner, he's a very believable catcher. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and you I mean, you see him making some good throws and yeah. knows how to knows how to swing a bat. So yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, definitely a good job filling out the and you know it's such a smart thing to do when when casting to find those because who who does what if you love baseball you get a chance to <laughs> be in a baseball movie you don't know what kind of success it's going to be right but right you're, you're out there even if I paid you fifty bucks a day or whatever you're running around in right field I mean you're having the time of your life I mean that's oh, yeah. great you can easily find those people probably a little monotonous doing the same play but I guess if you're a minor league player it's kind of like practice you're just you know working the same plays for two or three hours. You know, for them, it's just extra practice exactly. for sure. I'm sure for them, I'm sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's talk about Kevin Costner. So, as I mentioned before, the name Crash Davis was actually based on a real baseball player from the 1940s. Shelton spotted the name in an old Carolina League record book, liked it and used it. Then on the first day of filming, he got a call from the real Crash Davis, who was still very much alive. Shelton invited him to the set, hoping that he could get the old timers OK to use the name in the film. Davis had one question about the Crash character for Shelton before he would agree to it. He said, do I get the girl? Shelton replied, yes. In fact, I'll introduce you to the girl. He brought Susan Sarandon over and she charmed the heck out of him. (laughs) (laughs) That could have gone south real real quick if you you lose the name Crash Davis. Right, right, which was a great name. It was like, you know, for a catcher. Really, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, So Kevin Costner, a little bit about his backstory. He enrolled in California State University at Fullerton in 1973 where he majored in business. During that period, Kevin decided to take acting lessons five nights a week. He graduated with a business degree in 1978 and married his college sweetheart, Cindy Costner. He initially took a marketing job in Orange County. Everything changed when he accidentally met Richard Burton on a flight from Mexico. Burton advised him to go completely after acting if that's what he wanted, so he quit his job and moved to Hollywood soon after. He drove a truck, worked on a deep-sea fishing boat, 
and gave bus tours to stars' homes before finally making his way into the films. But after making one softcore sex film, he vowed not to work again if that was the only work he could do. He didn't work again for nearly six years while he waited for a proper break. He actually turned down the leading role in War Games in 1983, which was played by Matthew Broderick, to play Alex Marshall in The Big Chill instead. But his scenes ended up being on the cutting room floor, but he was remembered by the director Lawrence Kasdan when he decided to make Silverado in 85. Costner's career took off after that with starring roles in other 80s box office hits like No Way, no Way Out and The Untouchables in 1987 and Field of Dreams in 89. So, but like we talked about, Shelton cast Costner because of his natural athleticism. Costner was a former high school baseball player and was able to hit two home runs while the cameras were rolling and, according to Shelton, insisted on throwing out runners even when the cameras weren't rolling. <laughs> no, no, one, no one's still on a Costner behind home right, plate, I guess. Right, right. Uh, which I, I remember reading this before, but Kurt Russell actually helped Ron Shelton develop the script and was originally penciled in to play Crash, uh, but his schedule wouldn't let him, get, uh, wouldn't let him do it. After the film was made, Russell was so impressed, he actually wrote fan letters to Costner and Shelton. So, pretty classy move. Very cool. So, thoughts on Costner in the role? He's fantastic as Crash Davis. I mean, I mean his, his speech uh, early on in the movie when Annie's trying to decide who she's going to date, uh, Nuke or Crash, mm-hmm. and his speech about uh, things he believes in is just, uh, mm-hmm. you know, such a, such a memorable... Uh, line the way and the way he delivers it as he the more things that he says he believes in I, I believe uh, Lee Harvey Oswald mm-hmm. acted alone I believe and, and then the long mm-hmm. wet kisses thing the last three days he gets mm-hmm. so much more animated as he's going along and he starts doing hand gestures and he starts to get really into it I believe this <laughs> right. and I believe this and I believe it you know right. and then right. ends with the right. the kiss part because he's talking to a woman and then just says good night drops the mic and walks out of the house I mean that's that's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. The baseball scenes are, are believable. Again, he had an athleticism and, and played baseball. Um, yeah, so I mean Costner, and especially at that time, you know, young Costner, he he can play the 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 guy that guys want to be, but the, the guy that women want to have. You know, and mm-hmm. he's, he's he's got that charm, but he's also got that edge uh, to him. And yeah. he, he, yeah. he heck, he still does that on Yellowstone, really. Um, oh yeah. So he's yeah. he's always had that that uh, that swagger to him, and really he has. And, and I don't want to jump ahead in, in the podcast here, but my, my favorite I think line in the movie is his um, when he tells Nuke to uh, um, stop being a fascist and throwing so many fastballs, to throw more <laughs> curveballs. It's it's more democratic. And every time right. he says that, I remember the fir- <laughs> first time I heard that, I was like, that is beautiful. You know, you're trying yeah, to strike everybody yeah. out. You're a fascist. No, not curveballs. He said, throw, <laughs> throw more ground balls, so off-speed stuff, because they're, they're going to induce ground balls, and then you get your teammates mm-hmm. involved. It's more democratic. Like, that is such a right. great line for a catcher to tell a pitcher. <laughs> uh, kudos yeah. to, Sh- for, to Shelton for writing that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think Costner's, Costner's great. And it's funny because, and, and we talked about Field of Dreams last year, he made Field of Dreams right out, right after this. And he didn't think he wanted to do another baseball movie, but he's playing such different characters in those two movies. And, you know, it, it's kind of like the aw shucks, good old boy in Field of Dreams, which I know you don't really like. And <laughs> you're not a big fan. I've never wanted to build it, and I didn't care if they came. <laughs> <laughs> but in this, he's the, you know, he's got grit, he's got sarcasm, he's got, you know, but. It's, you know, especially like I said, it's watching it now and understanding his character as you're older. It's like you have these dreams, you have these aspirations, you know, you want to be in the big league, big leagues. And especially like that first his introduction scene when he comes into the uh, to the back office with the, the managers. And, you know, they're like, you know, why are you why are you bringing me here? Why you why I got to, you know, babysit this, you know, meat, which I love. He calls him meat. meat. <laughs> and, you know. But you can tell he's like, he's frustrated, but he loves the game so much. And it's like, I'll continue to do this because I love the game, even if the game isn't giving me what I want. You know, which I think is that's that cool aspect of his character for sure. But my favorite, my favorite part of that scene is when he's like, man, you know, blank this. You know, it's like, I'm out of here. He goes out the door. He's like, who are we playing tomorrow? It's like, well, we're playing this team. He's like, 
batting practice at 1130. He kind of walks away. He's like, yeah, he'll be there tomorrow. I was like, you know, so yeah. just that. He, he that, can't leave. I mean, he loves yeah. the game. He wants to be a, wants to be part of it. Yeah, yeah. that's a, a, that's a great scene as well. And he, and the character in the movie, I mean, he does so many different things. I mean, he's helping the manager figure out how to leave, yeah. scare him. Yep. Yeah, you know, yeah, is, that was a the great line scene that he too. tells the manager. He's one of the guys when he tells them, I can get us a rain out, and then they get yeah. drunk and go to the stadium and turn on the sprinklers. Um, right. You know, he's a, he's teaching Nuke all these life lessons to help him. You know, mm-hmm. So all these different roles that that, that, that character has. And then, uh, um, well, I'll save my, my other great scene for a little bit farther along. Okay. All right, cool. All right, well, moving along, we'll talk about Susan Sarandon as Annie Savoy. Uh, more than 15 years after beginning her career, Susan Sarandon, who kept her married name, after divorcing fellow actor Chris Sarandon in 79, which I did not know. I always thought they were brother and sister. I had no idea that they were once married and she kept his last name. So, uh, but she actively Prince. campaigned. We would, I would say Prince Hufferdink from The Princess yeah, Bride. Exactly. Who was at Megacon, which you and I attended just a couple yes, of days ago in right. Orlando, sir. We, didn't, we did not see him, but he was there. I, I saw him. <laughs> oh, did, you saw him? Okay. Yep, you got close, enough, got close enough to the table to see him. I saw I some other he, cool uh, people. Hair is slightly gray now. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Look, it was and probably slightly, slightly. I mean, it's gray. <laughs> I was gonna say it was probably slightly gray when we did Princess Bride. He just dyed it back then. Probably. So, uh, but anyway, so she actively campaigned for the role of Annie in Bull Durham. She flew at her own expense from Rome to Los Angeles. She said it was such a wonderful script. Did away with a lot of myths and challenged the American definition of success. She said that the studio thought that Susan Sarandon was too old and not funny enough to play Annie. So producer Tom Mount had Sarandon, who was 41 during production, to go to Orion Pictures co-founder Mike Metavoy's office in a tight dress and lean over his desk for half an hour. Uh, She said, as a rule, most studio executives' strong suit isn't imagination. Sarandon recalled to Sports Illustrated in 2012, so when you're trying to get a part, it helps for them to be able to envision you in the part. I definitely didn't go in there in a t-shirt and jeans. I remember I had on an off-the-shoulder red and white striped dress. It was very form-fitting. It was understood what I had to do. Well, you're explaining a, a, a Me Too Right, moment. right, exactly. I mean, I don't know. what's happening. Yeah. Go, go, go in there and flirt with the executive so that we can get this to get this right, movie made. Right. Jeez. Once again, welcome to the 80s. This is a different, different yeah, time, different exactly. culture. But, uh but both Carrie Fisher and Deborah Winger auditioned for the role of Annie, but backed out. And Michelle Pfeiffer also auditioned what was deemed too young for the role. So, uh, Yeah, Annie has to be an aging person at that point in the 80s. I mean, yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer would probably be too young. Deborah Winger would have been interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but Sarandon, Sarandon knows the part. Yeah. So. Carrie Fisher would have been interesting. I'm not a... I don't want to say I'm not a big Susan Sarandon fan. I'm not. Okay, this may be a hot take, everybody. Here comes hot take. She's just not that sexy to me. Like, she doesn't, like, I don't see the big attraction to her, like, why these two guys are necessarily fighting over her besides just knowing that she's the one that's going to, you know, sleep with the player for the season and give them tips on how to make their game better, which I don't think that was Costner's reason for being attracted to her. But I just, and even in some of the scenes, like, as much as I love the movie, I don't really see that chemistry there between the two of them either. Um, uh, see, I do. I think that that, um, and she had something going on because this is when she started dating uh, Tim Tim Robbins, and then they got Tim Robbins. Uh, yeah, like I see the chemistry between the two of them. I don't see it as much with her and Costner because she was older than him in real life, and they ended up together yeah. for like twenty twenty five years or something. Yeah, yeah, the, um, yeah. He did an inter- yeah he did an interview. I don't remember, but anyway, it was Tim Robbins and his son. They were doing an interview together about this movie. And he was like, he's like, anything you want to say to Ron Shelton? He's like, well, thank you, because without you, my son would not be here. He's like, right. you know, what do you, you know, what did your son think about the movie? He's like, well, uh, I have to love it because without it, I wouldn't be here. You know, that kind of thing. Right. So. But, but Crash is, is attracted to her, not so much because of the physical nature, because uh, Crash is a actually a smart guy. I remember Max Patankin tells her, that's Crash Davis. I, I actually saw him read a book once. Uh, you know, <laughs> right. so unusual for a minor league baseball player, and so you know she's an English professor, and he's he's a little smarter. So I think he's a, attracted. Right. To, he's attracted to that, uh, mm-hmm. maybe more so than the than the physical nature. So that that's why I think it works. Okay. Um, I want to get to. I can see that. I want to get to Timothy Robbins and the, the right. almost disaster that would have occurred had they not cast him 
Um, I'm sure you have that in your notes. Well, let's see. Here we go. Uh, Tim Robbins is Ebby Calvin Nuke Lelouch. Lelouch. According to director Ron Shelton in the DVD commentary, he came up with the name Ebby Calvin Nuke Lelouch after being served in a restaurant by a waiter named Ebby Calvin Nook, N-O-O-K, not N-U-K-E, LaRouche, LaRouche, not Lelouch. Shelton thought it was a standout name and changed the spelling of the nickname and last name, so he got pretty close to the same. But uh, let's see, Robbins studied drama at UCLA where he graduated with honors in 1981. He started film work and television movies in 1983, but hit the big time in 88 with Bull Durham. Shelton cast Robbins over the strong objections of the studio who wanted Anthony Michael Hall instead. I cannot see that at all. (laughs) No. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I get the the tall, lanky kind of the – I see the physical aspect of it, but the character – no, no. But yeah, this is this is yeah this is the funny story. So director Ron Shelton and producer Mark Berg went to New York to meet with Anthony Michael Hall, who showed up half an hour late and hadn't even read the script. When Hall came back the following day, he said he'd only read half of the script. When Shelton heard that, he had enough and he got up and walked out. Shelton had to threaten to quit before the studio backed off. Good for Shelton for sticking to his guns. Exactly. Done done by Anthony Michael Hall to uh, waste that opportunity. But this is around the time when he's been like when he's making uh, Johnny Be Good, the football movie where he's the quarterback. He was trying to make that transition. Yeah, he was trying to make those transitions from the teen to like the young adult movies. But yeah, yeah, and Johnny Be Good was not good. (laughs) No, it was not. And I I think I feel like he could have dragged this down. Timothy Robbins obviously has proven himself to be a much better actor. Uh, I mean, now we get Anthony Michael Hall just running through uh, hospital, stairwell, uh, hospital stairwells in the <laughs> most recent Halloween uh, iteration from last season. Right, right. Uh, yeah, Charlie Sheen was also considered for the role, but was already committed to Eight Men Out, another baseball movie that came out in 88. Uh, but I guess Robbins revealed on the Colbert Report in 2005 that of all the movies he's made, Bull Durham is his favorite. Well, over... Over Shawshank, right? Over Shawshank, wow. yeah, yeah. But I think this this character that he plays in this is just he got to kind of be free and wild, you know. It's like he's you think about Shawshank, he's very reserved. Right. I mean, he's playing a character, but he doesn't have as much freedom right. to kind of be as wild and crazy. And in this one, watching him try to you know throw in his pitch and closing his eyes and you know breathing breathing through his eyelids. Know, uh, early, early yeah, on when he's yeah. dancing with the women in the bar and like who's he dancing with or like I think yeah. all of them he, all of them yeah. so yeah he's being wild and crazy and again in real life he meets his his future wife mother of his mother of his child children, children. Yeah. Uh, yeah. so yeah that would be it's got to be a fun time in his life so what do you I, mean, I guess I, what do you think about Tim Robbins but I know you we've I think we've pretty much covered we thought he was great yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Tim Robbins nailed it, and I'm just so thankful that it wasn't Anthony Michael Hall. And you know, and I, I love Sixteen Candles. I love Breakfast Club. You know, I'm not trying to throw oh, a whole yeah, lot of yeah, shade yeah. on at Anthony Michael Hall, but no, 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 uh, no. Yeah, Robbins much better, much better choice in this in this movie. I can see where they were trying to get, like I said, the physical aspect. They they're similar. The one thing that's so funny to me is I never thought of Kevin Costner being short. But the scenes of him and Robbins together, it's like Robbins just towers over Kevin Costner. Yeah, but Robbins is like, and Robbins like six two or, or six three or something. He's yeah, a I mean, tall he's, guy. He's, he's tall. Yeah. yeah, but he just—it's just funny. It's like there's a few scenes where like they're a little closer to height, but I think they've got Costner standing on the mound and like Robbins is kind of off the mound when they're having their little meetups uh, in the games, but. Uh, but that 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 makes me laugh because I just think about like I don't ever think of Costner as being a short guy, but he looks like you know he looks really small uh, or really short next to Robbins. So uh, just two more in the cast because you know I'll try to stick with some of the main characters. But I want to talk about Trey Wilson as Joe Skip Riggins, the uh, manager. Houston-born character actor Trey Wilson was at his best playing rural, authoritarian type roles, usually in comedic productions. He was really starting to hit his straps in feature films when he unfortunately succumbed to a cerebral hemorrhage only days from his 41st birthday. Probably best remembered as fast-talking furniture store mogul Nathan Arizona looking for his one missing son, although he's not sure which one, in the -the off-the-wall comedy Raising Arizona in 87. 
And so, of course, uh, that's I, and, I, and I saw him as like I knew I'd seen him in something else when I saw he was in Raising Arizona. I was like, yeah, that's that's the other film I, I recognize him from. So he only did a couple of movies uh, before he passed away. I think he passed away like a week or two before this released, I think. Okay. Yeah, that explains why we haven't seen him in anything else after that. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, lastly is Robert Wool as Larry Hockett. Uh, we just talked about Wool a few weeks ago on Batman. Uh, but uh, Robert Wool began performing after college at the Improv in New York, where, he, where his stand-up routine drew a strong following and attracted the attention of Rodney Dangerfield. Wool then worked as a joke writer. He's best known for his roles in Good Morning Vietnam in 87, Batman in 89, and the lead role in the HBO original series Arliss, which debuted in 1996. So he's memorable in this. I love the scenes where he's doing the little bada 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 bada. You know, he's like just <laughs> spitting out gibberish. It's such a classic <laughs> assistant baseball manager uh, yeah. thing thing to do. Yeah. And and also, no matter what he's doing, as soon as that manager says, "Hey, do this," he's just like, "Okay," and he goes. Yeah, you know, he's, yeah. You know, like, what do you go, go back there and break up the fight? He runs back there and breaks up the fight. Now, what are you doing? Right. He's teaching me right. to throw a curveball. That's great. That's great. Somebody give me a ball. Give me a ball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> completely shift. Yeah, I love. He's like, he's like, what shifts direction? Yeah. Shifts gears on a, on a dime. He just turns and just like, oh, oh okay. Yeah. Right. I like when he, when the coach is like, what's going on with Lou? She's not looking right. Yeah, he can't see out of his is it left eye. He can't breathe out of his left eye. His right eye, right eye, right eye. Right eye. Can't, you know, he's like, which eyes can't breathe out, breathe out of at that time. And, this is just and uh, his. See, so this funny. is leading into to, uh, and I'm gonna jump out in front of it. Yeah. So favorite the, scenes. The, the meeting at the mound <laughs> when they're all they're all out there. Yeah. Kevin Costner and, was... and they're and then he walks out and like go out there and see what's happening. And he goes out there. What's going on? Mm-hmm. And then uh, Crash Davis says, mm-hmm. well, "We're dealing with a lot of stuff out here. We." Um, there's a there's a, right. a hex on 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 a glove, so he can't field. There's um yeah that's so he's nervous because his dad's there watching him pitch. Nobody knows what to get Jimmy and Millie for the a wedding gift, and uh, he's like, which is we're dealing with a lot. And then Robert Wool just says, well, yeah. uh, you know, he just starts ticking off answers to all the different problems, solving the things, and he gets uh, candlesticks yeah. are always a nice gift. Uh, you can find out where they're registered. All right, right, let's go, let's go play. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> he just eh, I'm out here solving problems, and uh, I think it heads back to the huddle. Exactly, exactly. Getting the game back back in progress. That's what we do. So yeah, yeah. That one I had that one marked as one of my favorite scenes as well. That's that that's a classic. Um, so anybody else in the cast you want to talk about? I mean, there weren't there were a few other people that looked a little familiar, but nobody that had any anything much to really talk about it. I know. Um, the character, I think you mentioned the one that marries uh, Millie, Jimmy. The only yeah, Jimmy. The only other thing that I remember him in was Hot Shots. Uh, See, I know him from Home Improvement. He was Tim Allen's oh, brother yeah, on. Oh that's Home right. He was on Home Improvement. Yeah. yeah, but I remember from the movie Hot Shots. Uh, he was one of the characters in that. But yeah, he was Tim Allen's brother. That's right. I totally forgot about that. So, and, I, um, and that's stuff. what I haven't seen him in anything since then. It just kind of mm-hmm. disappeared. So yeah, yeah. But so once again, a really small role. I did like the stuff with the uh, was the chicken bones uh, for the curse on the bat, and then every time uh, Crash gets up to hit to bat, he like rubs his bat against the other guy's bat. To, right, the know. other guy's like, "Give me some of that. Let, let touch my eye." He's like, "No, no, no, it's desperation." <laughs> and then Crash doesn't ask; he just taps it and just stares at him until he <laughs> until he blesses his bat with it. It was like, "All right." And now these messages. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gag Me With The Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant With The Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes. <sighs> what seems to be the problem, pal? 
There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues. I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR. But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. Alright, well let's go ahead and talk about favorite or iconic scene. So <laughs> is there an iconic scene for you in this movie? Well, the uh, the iconic scene is probably the uh, telling uh, uh, the, the debate between the two of them. It's two for me, really. The debate between the when he tells him what pitch is coming, he's he's he's, he's oh, so yeah, he's yeah. he's telling him to throw a curveball, and he's shaking him off. Uh, uh, Nuke mm-hmm. uh, Timothy Robbins' character is shaking him off and talking to himself. I want to throw the heat. I want to throw the heat. Yeah. And then he walks out yeah. there and so, you know he's throwing what a two hitter. I'm calling this game. I'm telling you what the pitch. You're throwing a two hitter, <laughs> and you're shaking me off with all my experience. Right. And he said, "What are you doing?" And he says, "I want to." announce my presence with authority and he goes you want to what <laughs> i want to announce my presence with authority and he says this guy's a mm. first ball fastball hitter and he's like so mm. what he ain't never seen heat like my heat and he's like all right throw, throw it and then he goes back and uh, as he's walking by the batter of course says fastball and then bends down mm. is like yeah no nah, i'm not giving you a signal just come on that's what you want to throw, throw right it. right home run and then so that yeah. one and then tied in but that's what yeah but going back to that, my favorite line, his favorite line is like fastball coming. And when you think of me, think well. Well, that's. And then he goes down to stance. That's on the second one. So the first one, he just says fastball and he takes the stance. When it happens again later in the movie, that's, that's oh, the it's, player. It's that, when he shakes him off again, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he just stands up. Uh, he doesn't walk out to the mound right. and he just says. Right. And then, yeah, when you, when you speak of me, speak well. And you see the batter yeah, just smile. Enough. Which, which yeah. always to me was always because he calls him by name. He says like Jimmy, mm-hmm. and so like he's yeah. moved around the minor leagues so much. He's played with this guy at some point. He was on his team, <laughs> right? And you see right, him just right. smile. And then um, I forget if it's the first one or the second one. I think it's the second one. Uh, um, in fact, it is the second one. So on that one that you're talking about, he hits the bull, and that's when he comes out and goes, and he's like, "Yeah, hey, yeah, and gets a yeah. stake." Right, Ro- right. Robin's no-, no, that no, the no, the first one is he hits the bull because I remember today. The first one he hits the bull, okay, and that's that was the that was the the fastball. The second one he wants to throw the deuce instead of the heat, and that's when he says, "Think of me and think well." But he hits it so far out, he even comes back on the mound. And he says, it "Should uh, have its own zip code." They got out of here at <laughs> yeah. He said that got out of here in a hurry. He said anything going that fast should have its own had to have its own stewardess. Oh, stewardess, yeah, that's so, um, yeah. yeah. And he and and Nuke knows what happens and doesn't even like just kind of mm-hmm. side eyes him. Like you, you, you yep. told him again. Yep. Yeah, those are iconic scenes. <laughs> the other uh, uh, iconic one is at the very beginning when they meet and they go outside to fight, mm-hmm. and he says, "Hit, hit, hit oh, me with yeah. this." Yeah. And it always makes me laugh. You're out at a bar. Have you got a baseball in your jacket pocket? Why? Why do you have a baseball <laughs> in your jacket pocket? <laughs> Crash Davis said he throws him. He says, "Here, hit." hit me with this and and everyone's like oh mm-hmm. oh no he, he mm-hmm. throws so hard he'll kill he's like i gotta you got a million dollar arm but i got a good idea about that five cent head of yours and that's yeah. i have used that line so many times over the course of my life <laughs> obviously not playing baseball just something happened i was like no i got yeah. a good idea about that five cent head of yours head. yeah um yeah. and of course he, he throws it and doesn't hit him so yeah he's like you couldn't hit a you couldn't hit a side of a boat you couldn't hit water if you fell out of a boat. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Because he says you're starting to think about it. That's the first thing he calls him meat. You're starting to think about it, meat. Mm-hmm. How embarrassing it's going to yeah. be in front of all these people. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's. So th- those are my moments. What about you? Yeah, I think you. I think you took mine. Uh, <laughs> as far as iconic, yeah, I think iconic because I think those those are scenes that were in the trailer. Of course, they edited that opening speech about the things that crash believes in, you know, they, they only, they only, they, they only showed the, or only played the PG versions of that one. Um, and then, yeah, just the, you know, the scenes of crash and nuke together, uh, are really good. 
uh, and I guess, you know, <laughs> uh, Nuke's dream sequence when he's out pitching in the garters and nothing else, uh, yeah. you know, he wakes up from the dream. That That's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, but there's, uh, you know, the favorite scenes, the the mound is, I had that one marked as like one of my, you know, one of my, my top favorite scene. Uh, but, and the, the two you just talked about with the, you know, telling, telling the batter, the pitch, I love a lot of the, uh, the conversations, like them talking to themselves and a little bit of the voiceover, like, yeah, throw that, throw that, throw that, that heat and meat. Let's, you know, see what you can do. One of my other favorite makes me laugh every time is when he tells him, hit the bull. You want me to hit the bull? I mean, I'm just, I've got, I got control. Like, just trust me, just trust me, hit the bull. And when he hits that yeah. bull, the, the mascot, it just, it cracks me up. He's like. That guy's crazy. Yeah, I don't know where it's gonna go, man. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't get too. I wouldn't get too close. If I were you. Yeah. Yeah. Why is the mascot on the field behind home plate, like just <laughs> just like five feet over to the side? Like, why are right. you? You, you right. should get hit. Someone should throw yeah. at you. Oh, and I love I love uh, Nuke's first pitch and Millie with the speed gun when it goes so above and she just you know she follows the ball as it goes over her head with the yeah. with the speed gun, which, which makes me laugh. Uh, but yeah, those those are all great scenes. Any any other favorite scenes for you? No, I mean we've we've we're like calling out like half of the movie for uh, <laughs> for for that's what we scenes. do. That's why that's why people tune into the podcast. They want to hear us try our best to reiterate <laughs> our favorite lines and say them incorrectly, and then talk about how bad we we do it. So the um when when he turns the sprinkler on the field, watching them run and slide yeah. and play in the mud in the mud as grown adults you just you get the feeling that they were really looking forward to filming that scene those those mm-hmm. four guys that they were like oh we get to just run around the bases and slide in the mud tim <laughs> robbins in particular it looks like he is having the time oh, of yeah. his life um, oh yeah and coster still has a little like intensity to him he's going first like he's he's going to be safe <laughs> he's going to get into that right. robbins is right. just cracking up the entire time all right, well, let's talk a little bit about some of the trivia I found for some of the scenes. Maybe we'll, it'll spark our memory on some other stuff. Although Kevin Costner plays the older, more experienced ball player in real life, he's only three years older than Robbins. They were 33 and 30, respectively, during filming. And Susan Sarandon was actually 42. Kevin Costner is a switch hitter, so his character is shown hitting both left and right-handed at different points in the film. So, Yeah, I don't remember him taking... Taking cuts from the right side of the plate. I do remember taking from the left. Yeah. I think there's one... Yeah, there's one scene where he's batting right... I think so. I don't know. I have to go back and watch now. You're making me doubt my research. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure the research is correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's always a chance that some of it didn't make it to the... The final edit. To the big screen. Yeah. Yeah. So the big club is referenced several times during the movie, though it is never made completely clear what major league team the Bulls are affiliated with. At the time of the filming, the Durham Bulls were a Carolina League single A affiliate of the Atlanta Braves. As of 2013, mm-hmm. the Durham Bulls are a triple A affiliate of the Tampa Ray Bays. Tampa Bay Rays. Oh gosh, I'll keep that in because I messed it up so bad. Affiliate of the, the Tampa Ray Bay Rays. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I thought that was cool. Has our has our Atlanta Brave connection there, as as well as should. Uh, so the bar scene we talked about takes place at Mitch's Tavern in Hillsborough Street in Raleigh, North Carolina, across the street from North Carolina State University. Today in Mitch's, there are a few mementos from the movie: a framed film still of Crash Davis and Annie Savoy, autographed by Sarandon and Costner, and the glass door which Nuke Lelouch breaks is framed. The furniture, fixtures, and layout of the tavern largely remain the same as they were in 1988. <laughs> uh, so I, I had to include this because we've we've talked about this person way, way back in season one. But a young choreographer named Paula Abdul was flown down to Durham, set to teach Robin some flashy moves for a scene where he dances at the bar. When she was done, she approached the director, Ron Shelton, and asked him what part he had for her in the film she claimed she had been told by one of the producers that if she taught Robin some dance moves, she would be rewarded with a speaking part. Shelton apologized and informed her that there was no part, and she marched off screaming, said Shelton. Well, that would be a precursor of uh, some erratic behavior from Paula Abdul that would come later in her <laughs> career. But um, uh, I, don't, I don't know. That. I mean, they could have made her one of the women that he was dancing yeah. with and let her go. Woo! Right. Yeah, there really wasn't much dialogue with anybody else in that scene. 
but we talked about the rainout scene was based on an actual event in the late 1960s. Ron Shelton played minor league ball in the Texas League. Shelton's team was in Amarillo, Texas for a season-ending series. The night before the final game, Shelton, some teammates, and some Amarillo players were out partying and decided to go to the stadium and turn on the sprinkler system, flooding the field and ensuring a quote-unquote rainout. But the Amarillo team owner rented a helicopter, dried the field, and the game was played anyway. And this was... this. When I saw this, it made it it helped me with a, a scene. So there's a scene where you see Annie wearing a uh, black veil during one of the games. Mm-hmm. So that's because there was a deleted scene. In the previous scene, Annie attended Max Patkin's funeral. Uh, Ron Shelton had written a scene where Max was killed in a car crash during the season. Interesting. I mean, why would you? Okay. I mean, they took it out, so yeah. maybe they realized that yeah. too. Why would you kill? And I only know Max uh, is the, the, the clown prince of baseball mm-hmm. because I used to have a subscription to Sports Illustrated. I mean, for like 20 years, I had a subscription. Right. And I right. literally read my SI uh, <laughs> every week, cover to cover. Right. And so there was a big – like in the early 90s, there was a big article about Max and about his life and how he got into that and, and everything. Uh, and I remembered him from Bull Durham. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, there was just – why would you yeah. kill the guy off and then – yeah, I think yeah. because if I'm, I'm think I'm trying, I didn't write the full story, but I think like they had him for those opening scenes, but then they couldn't get him because they filmed this in like October, and I think that he did some time off or whatever. So they were trying to they added the scene to kind of show why he wasn't there later in the movie, why he just all of a sudden disappears. But then maybe when they put that scene in, it made it a little bit too serious that early in the movie. And so they ended up taking it out. So, right, but he—I mean, Max wasn't really tied to a lot of like single teams. He moved around right. to different teams. Right. That's what it was known for. You shouldn't have to explain that. Uh, he's also by far the worst actor in this movie <laughs> on his speaking lines. Yeah. They're really—you're really like, oh, he's—he's he's really not good. Look, honestly, um, it was like it was this third time watching it today that I realized that's who Annie was talking to at the bar at the beginning. Like I didn't, I didn't connect that that was who, who that was. Yeah. Until today. Hey, crash, come on over. (laughs) Like, yeah, that's, that's terrible. Max. Um, but but he, he almost gets the girl as the two of them go off to fight. Right. Right. She's like, come on, Max, let's dance. Right. Right. Uh, all right. So just a few more and then we'll wrap it up. Originally after Annie and crash have their argument in crash's apartment, There was a scene in which Annie and Crash go to a bar and have a heart-to-heart talk. In the talk, Crash asks Annie why she loves baseball so much. She explains that several years before, her estranged father passed away and the funeral took place in Florida. She was so distraught after the funeral that she wandered off and ended up at the New York Yankees Spring Training Facility where she met legendary Yankees catcher Thurman Munson, thus explaining her shrine to Munson seen in the film. From then on, she developed a deep-rooted love of the game. According to Ron Shelton in the DVD commentary, he cut that scene out when it was re- when it was received poorly during a test screening. After the scene was removed, a second test screening was done, and the movie received a higher score. That sounds that sounds interesting to me. Like I would yeah. kind of like that, yeah, a little backstory, backstory but, really good. Yeah, yeah. it could have dragged that that dragged the pace somewhat, maybe. I thought it would have just been something like her father was a minor league baseball player. Yeah. For- yeah years or, or something like that and never made it so she's doing her best mm-hmm. to try to help other people make it you do kind of wonder as you're watching the movie like why i mean she has her voiceover at the beginning and explains her love of the game and you know that she tried different religions and it was only the church of baseball that you know she could really believe in but you don't really know why where that love came from and so i did think like even when she's doing the uh <clears throat> she's trying to help nuke in the backyard when he's trying to pitch and he just wants to you know go in the house and fool around or whatever. But, you know, she's teaching him like real basics of baseball, how to, you know, how to be a better player. And it's like, so my thought was like, maybe her dad was a coach. Maybe, you know, he didn't have any sons. And so he taught her everything he knew about baseball and, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I guess maybe leaving the mystery was, was good as well instead of spelling it out. But uh, still would have been an interesting scene to see for sure. Yeah, I agree. But uh, speaking of that shrine she has in her bedroom, I still forgot to look when I watched today. But supposedly, in her on her mirror, there is a baseball card of a player 
that we know as the current coach of the Atlanta Braves. She has a Brian Snicker. Snicker. Snicker baseball card in the mirror. I'm gonna go find that movie <laughs> and watch it just to see if I can if I can see Snit. Yeah. On the mirror. I had read that somewhere and then watching one of the Braves games last week. They mentioned it during the game. Uh, I don't know how it came up in conversation, but they mentioned it in, on there as well. It's like, well, hey, the internet can't be wrong if they're talking about it on on uh, during the play by play. So. And then my last little bit of trivia is Tim Robbins still owns the garter belts he wore in the film. He claims they're somewhere in storage with one of his jerseys from the film. There is also a nuclear loose jersey in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Very cool. Very cool. All right, let's talk about box office and critical reception and wrap this puppy up. So, Bull Durham was released in American theaters on June 15, 1988, and it was number six at the box office with a $15 million debut. It was beat out by Big with Tom Hanks, the re-release of Disney's Bambi, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Eddie Murphy's Coming to America, and Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry Harry sequel, The Deadpool, which debuted at number one. Bull Durham went on to gross a total of $50 million in North America, well above its estimated $9 million budget. The film's success helped spark a boom of baseball movies in the years afterward, which included Eight Men Out, Major League, Field of Dreams, and A League of Their Own in 1992. All happened because of Bull Durham. Yeah, uh, I thank you, one and all, for paying homage <laughs> to the best of them all. So uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at ninety-seven percent tomato meter with an eighty-two percent audience score, and IMDb got, gave it a seven out of a ten with a seventy-three on Metacritic. So ninety-seven is that too high? Just right. Well, it obviously should be 99. Uh, it's, it's, it's the greatest baseball movie of all time. I, I, I love this movie. I'm surprised that it's that high. Uh, yeah, it, it's yeah. that high for me, but I understand that I love the movie. And so I would guess it would be maybe closer to like a, between an 85 and a 90 for the average, yeah, yeah. Uh, average person. But, but the, ni- the 97 is the critics. So <clears throat> I could see the, I could see the critics liking this one. Um, because of the multi layers of the story, I think more than just a typical baseball movie. But but still, getting critics to agree on anything is is, <laughs> is complicated. The um, although maybe it helps the critics that I mean it's a baseball movie, but it's really it's narrated, so its point of view is from that of a female character. Right. She begins right. the narration, ends the narration, and narration yeah. during the middle, and yeah. so that also kind of sets it apart. Yeah, I'm looking it. at the the photo right now of okay. It's hard to see that it, it says like I guess you kind of have to know what his baseball card looks like, right? But it's right. very clearly Brian Snitker. Um, <laughs> she, she's look, she's looking in the oval shaped mirror, and it's right. stuck in the bottom of okay. the mirror. Gotcha, gotcha. And, and in the photo, by the way, he's wearing the a Durham Bulls. Okay, he's playing for Durham. Played, then, so yeah. well, you know, they were a, a Braves uh, farm team at that point, so it makes sense. Yeah. No, no final thoughts. It's a great movie. If you have not seen it and you're listening to this podcast, please go out and see it. Uh, you know, at your local movie theater. I'm sure it's playing this week, uh, trying to uh, knock Doctor Strange off the box office. If not, I'm sure you can find it uh, somewhere. Watch the original unedited version. I, I do think it was better, uh, although it can be a little risque. I would not that the uh, kiddies uh, necessarily sit no. down to, to watch no. this one if you have sensitive eyes and ears uh, right. in the house. Uh, and if nothing else, I love this movie so much. I'll throw it out there just like I do with Princess Bride. Uh, let me know, and uh, I'll send you four dollars so you can rent it on uh, Amazon if, uh, <laughs> if if you need to. That's how much I want people to watch and and enjoy uh, Bull Durham. Yeah, it's definitely one like I would say. I, I I think if you've if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably seen it, but if you haven't watched it lately, definitely go back and rewatch it. It's definitely worth. It's definitely one of those, like I said, I, I rate movies by rewatchability. This one's pretty high on the rewatchability for me, so um, it's definitely worth checking out again. Definitely, I think it's one I'll kind of add to the rotation to watch every year, uh, this time of year, spring training or, you know, when the season starts. Uh, be fun to watch. I agree. Um, I mean, I watch it every year. Now that I've remembered how much fun the unedited version is, I will go out of my <laughs> way to, to watch that every every year. Yeah. Right, right. Cool beans. Well, thank you, Ron, for being a part of this episode. Always great to have you on, my friend. 
So. I'm flexing. I'm flexing my <laughs> my muscles, which is always great for a podcast, so they can uh, they can they can not, see. I cannot see me in my, in the images. I'm flexing too. Always great Welcome to be to with the you, gun my show. brother. Welcome <laughs> to the gun show. There we go. Um, well, you were referencing uh, Harry. Uh, I must say Harry Potter movies. Uh, Dirty Harry movies. <laughs> we're both having issues tonight, my friend. Um, yeah. So having a good time. Always a pleasure, my brother. Always. All right. Well, thanks everybody for taking a listen. Be sure to share your favorite episode. If this is one of your favorite episodes, share it with a friend or family member that loves 80s flicks or if they just loves baseball and Bull Durham or Kevin Costner or Tim Robbins or Susan Sarandon or Robert Wolf for all that, for all that matters. Uh, but uh, make sure you follow us on the social medias. Check us out on TikTok. I'm still continuing my forgotten 80s flicks uh, series. I'm still getting a lot of great uh, comments. This this may go on for like five years. I get so many suggestions like every week of of movies that uh, that I haven't even heard of that there are people are telling me about, which is great. So be sure to check that out. Our next episode, we're going to talk about Back to the Future. Got a big Back to the Future closing out this season, kicking off summer with Back to the Future. So that's coming up in a couple weeks. So this is Tim Williams for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message through the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. Hey, and while you're there, be sure to check out the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Well, that's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s Flick Flashback. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.